0: Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website
1: at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben here. Welcome to episode 393 of the podcast. It is November 18th, 2020. Joining me today is Woody Zuhl. He does mob programming workshops and he gives talks and presentations on agile software topics and He coaches and guides folks interested in creating a wonderful workplace where people can excel in their work and in their life. That text is from uh, the main page of his website, woodyzool.com. It's Z-U-I-L-L, if you don't know Woody. I had a chance to meet him last year when I saw him speak at an Agile conference that I also presented at. I really enjoyed his perspectives. Uh, I like Woody a lot. He's participated quite a bit in... um, a group I organized earlier in the pandemic times, uh, basically for lean consultants or similar, uh, stuck at home to uh, compare notes and learn from each other. So topics today include the concept of flow in software development, the difference between mob programming and paired programming, and the no estimates movement and why that's important. I hope you'll find this interesting, even if you don't work in software. I know um, I certainly did. I'm only tangentially related to software. Um, I I just like Woody's um, thought process and way of explaining things uh, a lot. So if you want to find links to more information, you can go to leanblog.org slash 393. We're joined today by Woody Zool. Woody, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for ca- calling me in. This is fantastic. Well, I'm I'm happy we could do the podcast, and uh, I think we're going to be able to explore some different topics than we normally cover here. But it'll also be interesting, I think, to make connections between the 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 work that you've done and the way that you've done it and taught, um, comparing that where we can to broader um, lean principles. But um, you know, for context, I um, for the audience, I first. Met Woody. I, I saw him speak at a conference in Minneapolis that was organized by um, our mutual friends, Joel Tosi and, and Dion Stewart, um, good uh, friends of mine and of the podcast. And, um, you know, Woody, I really enjoyed your talk. And then um, we've been able to um, be part of a sort of a, a lean consultant. I don't know if you want that label or not. I don't know if I want that label, but uh, a consultants networking group. I'm hearing the pandemic, and you've been really helpful to people and had a lot of insights. So that's setting the bar high for you here, but welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Yeah, I've really
0: enjoyed this and uh, meeting with the group that uh, you just mentioned. And uh, I first heard of you, I'm sure, from something that was on Twitter, and I read some blog posts that you had written, and I could see the parallels between the world that you're active in and the world I'm active in. And I really appreciate seeing it from different points of view. Um, The same basic concepts in some way or another apply in so many places. Mm -hmm. And and it's kind of useful to see it, how it's, you know, viewed from a different perspective.
1: Yeah. So um, I always like to let guests introduce themselves. Um, If you want, you know, I interested. you know, for example, how did you get into um, computer programming? If you can, Kind of Give a little context for your career and the work that you've done. Sure.
0: So um, I started out uh, using computers in the very early 80s because I was in an industry at the time. I owned a couple of little businesses where we uh, could tell that computers were going to become important. Uh, so I thought I should get some. We got a couple computers, started using them, found that the, the computers worked OK, but the software was terrible. And after seeking software that would do the jobs we needed to have done, it became clear to me that maybe uh, I'll need to learn to program computers myself. I didn't, uh, I didn't understand that there would be any limitations to that, so I just started, um, you know, just writing some software. It turned out that I could write a little bit every day that would increase the usability for my user base, which was just people who worked for me, um, and deliver it on a daily basis. So this grew many years later for me into a focus of how I like to work. If you, can, if you can start something and get it into the hands of the users and they find it useful and you just keep adding to it over time, uh, it's a much better way to work than trying to figure out everything you want your software to do and writing it all and then delivering it. And that actually uh, is turned out to be what a lot of companies do nowadays. Uh, and there's a, there's some big advantages to it. As a matter of fact, I would say, if we could run the rest of our our lives the way we can do software, we probably would want to, <laughs> where we could just say, hey, well, I'd like a refrigerator, but I don't need all the features. And then you could add the features as you go and take away features you didn't like. And but you can't do that with a refrigerator really very well. So yeah, software turned out to be an interesting thing to me, and I ended up uh, making it my career. It took about 15 years to go from writing software for my own use to Mm -hmm. writing software for other people's use.
1: So I wonder, I mean, it sounds like you, you, you fell into, it was intuitive to you to do the work the way you did it. You weren't taught that. I don't know if this was prevailing at the time. I know later became prevailing and said, well, Woody, before you write any code, you need to write a requirements document. Right. Have all sorts of plans and release schedules and Gantt charts. You, you, you weren't doing that. And I mean, so I, I, what, what you're do, doing, what you're describing sounds like agile. I don't know what you think about that. Term. Yeah, so that's,
0: I think that's when, when agile came along,
1: I recognized it instantly as
0: um, very related to the way I naturally had started working. But I, I will say this, most business people, almost every business person I've ever worked with in some way or another, they started out with a smaller business and they grew it to a bigger business. They started out with a, a few ideas and then they steered, to what they really thought they should do over time. That's sort of a natural way of approaching things. And, so- and you know, software is definitely uh, one of those things. So I, I don't think this is uh, unique to software. Uh, it- it's not an unusual way to approach stuff. I know when I was young and my, uh, my, my uh, the church that I went to as a little kid, uh, they, would, they-, they would work on this summer camp. They would go up and build a kitchen or they would build a cabin or whatever. And they would go up there with enough materials to do the minimal thing they thought they wanted to get done. And then the next time they'd go, up, they'd bring some more stuff. But that original thing would be useful from that day forward. So mm-hmm. just a lot of people work this way. It's, it wasn't something I invented. I think it, I, it had been impressed on me as a younger person working for other people. It wasn't until I was about 30, 30 years old that I started learning to program. And uh, I had no fear at the time that uh, I couldn't, you know, that it would be a problem for me, but it turned out to be an extremely uh, complex thing. It was good. I started with just little bits.
1: Uh, Yeah.
0: It would have been overwhelming otherwise.
1: Yeah. And and what I heard you describing there, I mean, it sounds like you're talking about iteration. Exactly. Small batches and flow. Yes. And so I you know, if you could talk about some of your earlier um, kind of, you know, introduction to flow you were telling me before we started recording your experiences in a manufacturing company and with with, with okay. flow and pull systems so i i worked for a firm in uh,
0: the late 70s where the guy had invented um a, a part for for some i won't go into details i don't know what what i might have signed 40 years ago or whatever um but but he had invented a, a thing that was part of. Uh, that was typically manufactured uh, more or less custom manufactured usually and uh, with his new invention uh, he was able to get a much higher quality uh, product uh, every time so uh, I wanted an opportunity to work for them and I had this chance and I uh, went down there and they it turned out the way they did their work is somebody would order one of these products and they would bring it through their factory as fast they could so my particular job was at, at one point, in the uh, manufacturing process, and you didn't get hired as a job. You bought your spot in the manufacturing process. So in other words, uh, he didn't have any employees. He basically had people that were leasing some space, and they just needed to fulfill their little needs. So an order would come in. I would get a card, and the card would say, we need three of these or two of these, and this needs to have this particular uh, way it's made, or that one has to have this part of it. And I would just make them. Well, that is sort of a pull system. And it was very much, a we might sometimes call it Kanban uh, Mm. system. And I was surprised to watch this. I didn't know what it was. I didn't have any words for it. Uh, It took me another five or six years before I realized maybe I should learn these processes. There was nothing to read. And so I just did my own lame versions of using this in my own manufacturing little company that I'd started shortly after that. And in the long run... Um, people start writing about this in the early '90s, I guess, and I'm going, "Oh yeah, I know what that is." <laughs> <laughs> and and so, to me, I just embedded those those same ideas into the way I wrote software. So and really, what
1: you're just what you're describing that factory sounds like a combination of like a really old piecework system, and also sounds like it was early gig economy. <laughs> yeah, in a way, that's true. Yeah.
0: But I think this fellow understood uh, this was a, this required highly skilled craftspeople. And so, um, you can't just hire someone off the street and teach them how to do some of the processes they needed to do. And so, it was a, it was a bigger thing than just merely, um, you know, if you were going to make a company just uh, doing, you know, injection molding and, and so on, and then you take the pieces and you assemble them, you know, all of that kind of This was much higher craft than that. So, I think it fit the need. And maybe, maybe much of what we do nowadays. Uh, when we think about lean, has brought us back to this uh, concept that uh, we need highly experienced people
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, if we're going to get the flow we want. So that's let that, we probably should be talking about flow. Yeah. Um, so I, I I have a definition I use for flow for um, uh, for programming, and uh, it kind of comes off of the basic introductory description of flow for manufacturing. So I say for for software development. Flow would be the completion, the start to completion of some deliverable part of the software people are using from beginning to end with this little waste of queuing and waste of inventory uh, as we can have. So if we can eliminate the waste of queuing and the waste of inventory, that means we won't have interruptions. We won't have context switching and multitasking and all these things. If we can find a way to accomplish that, then we will get a much bigger benefit than if we figured out how to break everything apart into little bits and and uh, did it in a more typical software development manner, where we figure out all the requirements up front and then we uh, maybe estimate all of those things and then maybe we refine it a bit and then finally we start building it. Um, you know, we end up in projects when I was younger. I would see projects at uh, companies that would take a year or two, and this is trying to get. This approach, kind of the agile approach or the more current approach, trying to get something into use uh, by people within a few days or weeks of the inception of the project. And then you build on it. This gives us one super advantage of rapid feedback from actual users, which is hard to get in the older model. And you can't do that with all kinds of manufacturing, but you can do that with, with software development. and I think that's a powerful thing.
1: And so you seem to discover some, you know, these flow principles in a way that was intuitive to you, or you convinced yourself of the benefits. Um, how often are you placed in a position where you're trying to help convince an organization that better flow is possible, where people are maybe stuck in, in older methods, or are you generally brought in once people have already convinced themselves of some of those basic fundamentals
0: yeah so what normally is happening for me uh right now and this was uh, i've got to be really clear i didn't set out to try to do something that people would want to bring me in as a a consultant to do (laughs) i i accidentally fell into this what had happened was uh i was working i was hired to work with a team that was not very successful and they wanted a new manager for this team and uh i i in the interview process, I went to the to the person who would become my boss, and he was uh, interviewing me. And I told him that um, these people are not doing well not be, not because they are incapable or incompetent or they're not good at doing their work. They're not doing well because they're being poorly managed. Mm. That means you are doing a bad job, and so uh, nobody wants to hear that when you're out to hire somebody. Yeah, but. Um, that's sort of the way that I feel. I believe that the people doing the work, at least in software development, they don't need to be more closely controlled. They need to be liberated. If, if you liberate the people who are already pretty smart folks uh, to, to be free to do the best they can do, you'll get some great benefits that you can't do by trying to control that output. Uh, the, the output from a team is not a matter of Adding together the bits of work that people are doing in the agile world uh, the, uh, the results are going to come from making it easy for people to interact and work well together
1: yeah
0: and this means we have to t- learn what what does it really mean to do the work that we 're doing and uh, so you know what we ended up with after about six months of attempting to um, well, I hope I haven't gone off topic for you here. No, no, go ahead. Okay. So, so they, they had hired me to come in, and uh, I basically told them they don't need a manager. They need somebody to protect them from the managers. So <laughs> uh, I said, if you're willing to hire me to protect them from the managers, then, then I'm willing to come in. I actually told them there has to be a year of no interference. If whatever you see us doing it doesn't make you happy, you just need to you know, swallow it. Don't 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 bring that to the surface. If you uh, I need to have the right to to um, to uh, either cancel or at least postpone any work that the team's doing. If they're not doing well with it, and there's at least two projects that were about a year behind when they hired me. uh, If the team's not doing well with it, maybe they shouldn't be doing it. Let's let's get the skills we need, build those skills to be able to do this work rather than just trying to do it and so on. There were five or six limitations I put on them. I said, if you want to try this, this is what you're going to need to do. I, fir- I firmly believe in almost any type of work that the, that the people doing the work are usually the best ones to understand how to manage it. Right. We just don't give them the freedom to be able to do that. And I'd spent about 10 years going from 1999 to 2009, going through some pretty awful situations, trying to learn how to influence change. Uh, When you don't have the power to, to force that change. And I think that's actually a better way to go about doing things. And the end result for this was just that this team had about uh, six months of us as a team figuring out how are we going to make the improvements we need to have. And then like a a one day amazing uh, event that caused us completely changed the way we were working. So we had been learning to, we had been studying together. That's one thing that's important for a team of this sort is to spend time studying together because uh, it gives us a way to learn to get along that the pressures of work don't allow us to learn. Mm -hmm. So when we're studying together, we are also learning to like each other and learning to interact with each other as humans. Mm -hmm. But we chose a way of studying together that was uh, kind of unusual at the time, but it's where five or six of us would sit at a single computer. And we would switch out uh, the people that are, that are sitting at the computer itself and the person who's guiding them every four minutes. Hmm. So if you could picture five or six people sitting in front of a computer, we usually think of that, you know, as programming as a solo endeavor. Here's five or six people sitting together. And uh, the person at the keyboard is just following the directions or the idea of somebody else. And as we use this as our practice mechanism, we were learning three or four things. One of them was uh, how to just go ahead and do someone else's idea. Someone shares an idea. You don't argue with them about it. You just merely do it and see what we learn. Another thing we were learning was how to explain ourselves better, how to use the whiteboard to communicate, how to come up with an idea, not only uh, that, uh, something that works in our own head, but that everybody else can kind of get the feel for. So we have to learn how to do that communication. And we were also learning how to wait our turn to speak. Because everybody else on the team, we have, let's say, five or six people. One's at the keyboard. One's standing up and describing what they want to have done next. Everybody else's job is to wait their turn, listen to what's going on. Well, this little mechanism of training together led us to get become good at interacting with each other. hmm and after uh, four, well, no, it was almost five or six months of doing this, uh, one day we had to look at some work that uh, somebody was having trouble with. It was one of the jobs I had postponed. And they came to me and said, hey, we got to get going on this. And I said, what do you want to do about it? And the person said, uh, well, I'd like to look at the code. I'll take another developer with me and we'll come back and tell you what we saw. And in about an hour, they came back. They told me, this, this code's terrible. We'd like to have everybody look at it, and we'll decide who should be working on it. Well, that was a big step forward for them already because the code was terrible. But code, terrible code, or not very good code exists because we don't know what good code would look like or what we need to get good code. So that was a step forward. We gathered in a meeting, in a traditional meeting, you look at something, you discuss it, you talk about what we're going to do, you maybe make some decisions and then assign work to people. So that was the kind of meeting they wanted to hold. But in the middle of that meeting, we started actually working on the code. We've been learning a mechanism of improving bad code without having to read the code. So essentially, it's a a way of learning about the code by actually trying to improve it. And after a couple hours of doing that, somebody came into the room and asked us, told us you need to leave. We have this room scheduled for another meeting. And somebody on the team jumped up and said, hey, let's just go find another empty room somewhere. So was there a way of saying, let's just keep doing this? And that was in 2011, and we haven't stopped since. Hmm. But what we discovered after that happened, so this was just a team learning to work well together without the interference of somebody managing them, telling them how to learn to do that or what to do. But um, after doing that, we realized we had to start learning how to explain what this is because people started asking us. And this is where we uh, discovered the idea that we've really achieved a type of single-piece flow or one-piece flow or whatever they call it nowadays.
1: Right, yeah, um, either term, yeah. yeah.
0: And so there you go. So if we want to talk about flow, you can imagine that um, with solo working, you're still collaborating with other people. You're just collaborating in the least collaborative way possible <laughs> by having little meetings and, and communicating through email And maybe by checking your code in, which, you know, you add your code to the existing code base and other people looking at it. Um, Yeah, we in most businesses, we don't really make it easy for us to collaborate. And in software, that's something I don't know if by default it was that way. But a lot of firms think you need to just break up the work, give it to individuals and expect them to just, uh, you know, to somehow do it solo. And then you gather it together. So,
1: well, that idea of breaking the work down into little chunks sounds like the really old Frederick Taylor method or the Henry Ford assembly line mm-hmm. method. If you just d- divide the work up in small enough chunks, you can, if you will, just bring anyone in off the street, right? Plug them in and do it. But you know, you talked earlier about highly skilled craftspeople, which is what we would consider software developers to be, right? That's true. So I put them in that. Um, uh, deconstructed, do one part of the job type framework. It, it, it doesn't seem like that would be compatible with, uh, with what they want to do or how they want to work. Yeah, that's a
0: good point. Um, I, I believe there's very little thinking that we do alone in any work that we do, but that most people think that we think alone. That that's, you know, my brain is my brain. Nobody else really has access to that. I, I, the only thing I can do is think alone. But in reality, uh, you know, you and I having this conversation is a type of collaboration. But even if I was just sitting writing a blog post or something, uh, I'm thinking in a language that other people invented. I'm, I'm using uh, ideas that I've discussed with other people or from things I've read. All of almost anything we do is a type of collaboration but maybe we just don't notice that or admit it. And we end up uh, being very ineffective in our collaboration. I can see this, uh, there's the idea of collective thought. If you get five or six people together and they start discussing something, you're gonna get a different result than if you posed a question to those five or six people, had them sit apart and write down their ideas. So uh, just a different form of thinking. In fact, I've watched this with the group uh, uh, I try to observe these things in, in groups. When If you take a group of people, let's say in software, and you put them in front of a, a whiteboard, you get a whole different conversation than if they if they don't have the whiteboard. So it's like th- there's all these little things we can do to enhance the collaboration and it can be, um, it's worth exploring them and mm-hmm. seeing what you can do.
1: And so when you talk about groups of of people five or six people working together around a computer i I don't think you've used the term yet but this is what um did you coin this phrase mob programming yeah so that
0: was a phrase that had been
1: around years earlier a paper that was written in 2001 or
0: 2 but i always liked the term and somewhere in the late uh 2000 decade i uh started doing these um gatherings at user groups and and uh little conferences and stuff, where we'd get a a room full of programmers and work on something together. And I would always make this sort of a joke. We're going to, this is going to be like pair programming, but with more people. And I say, it can turn into a mob. So I call it mob programming, but we don't really want it to be a mob. So there's the idea of an unruly mob. We want to have a ruly mob. So like we're going to learn to work together and we need some simple protocol to do it. So it was a way to jokingly bring us into, you know, there's, there's, you've heard these old jokes, you know, like you give a, 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 pro, you give a problem to 10 programmers and you're going to get back 11 answers. You know? <laughs> and so it's like, yeah, everybody's going to have their own idea of how they want to fix this or, or write this code or whatever it is. So we had some simple rules. One of them was um, we're going to take turns. You can't, if you come up, you can't throw away the work somebody else did. So if you want to change it, you have to change it in smaller steps, baby steps, and so on. So we, we made a protocol and I was using that. So it was just a way to joke with programmers about how you know this worked. But I like the idea of a, of a mob, if I describe it this way. A mob is a group of people who have gathered together to accomplish something they couldn't do alone. Mm-hmm. And uh, it has a negative connotation, and I, I can see that. I originally wanted to call it whole team programming, mm-hmm. because that's a term that's used in, in agile software development. But that's so drab, nobody called it that. Yeah. And, and then somebody heard that our team was called, we called ourselves the mob programming team at this company where we originated this. And that just picked up almost immediately. And uh, at the very first conference where I talked about it before I was really calling it mob programming, people were coming up and asking about mob programming. So they named it for me. But but, but if you think about it, that five or six people sitting at one computer, that might be very ineffective if we don't have some decent interactive interaction protocols.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I, I like to take this sort of an attitude. When you come in in the morning, your job is to make sure Everybody else does as good as they can do today. That's your job today. You come in and make it easy for everyone else to do the best they can do. And if each team member comes in that way, our collaboration is going to get better and better. And we'd already been practicing for six months almost, interacting with each other. We'd started pair programming. Pair programming is where two programmers sit at a desk. And in years earlier, I had experimented with – programming with a programmer and a tester working together, a programmer and a business expert working together, and also with that, with all three of those, a programmer, a tester, and a business expert. Nowadays they would call a, business, a product owner. All three of us sitting together means none of us has to have the knowledge that the other two have, and we're acting like a three a three-headed programmer or whatever, you know, it's like all the brains of three people focused on one thing at one time. Hmm. I think there's a great benefit to that. Now, I, I have a picture that I like to use when I'm doing talks on this. It is of an operation. Uh, there's some doctors around an operating table, and there are, if that's the proper thing to call it, I'm not a medical person. That's fine. Yeah. And um, it happened to be I found this picture because I wanted to talk about what is teamwork, and it was it's a famous uh, heart operation on a 12 year old child back in the 1944 or something. And I was looking at it on a, a flight. I was uh, a, a flight from the U.S. To, to Europe. And I was looking at it on my computer. And the guy sitting next to me goes, oh, that's the such and such operation. Yeah, I've studied that in school. I said, oh, cool. You're a surgeon. Yeah, he was a surgeon. So I said, well, can I ask you some questions? So this is like a warning. If you see me getting on the plane and I find out that you do something I'm interested in, I might, uh, I might scrape out of your brain every bit that I can but I looked at the picture with him and he pointed out there were three surgeons in that picture. Each one had their own specialty. This is about flow because if they weren't all there, they couldn't have done this operation. So they're going to go from beginning to end with the, without the queuing, without the inventory, without the interruptions. And uh, there were like five or six technicians, a supervising, um, a supervising surgeon of some kind who wasn't actually doing anything. They had all practiced their different parts of this. It was just, it was beautiful. So this idea of flow is important when you're doing something like uh, surgery.
1: Yeah. And uh, it's the basic same idea. Well, you're making me think of something that had been developed in healthcare probably 10, 12 years ago. Uh, A health system in Wisconsin called ThetaCare developed a model for inpatient care units that they called collaborative care. They -hmm. could have called it mob care. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, Because what they were trying to do was um, kind of increase the the amount of real-time collaboration between doctor, nurse, and pharmacist. The biggest changes was getting pharmacists literally out of the pharmacy and up physically located in units, and that meant reconfiguring um, you know, the work and, and the balance of work, and they still had to have somebody in the pharmacy fulfilling uh, medications, but the, the clinical discussions about medications were happening more real-time instead of a handed-off message through whatever technology was used for messaging and getting tighter collaboration between doctors and nurses. So that meant redesigning. I'm certainly not an expert on their system, but I visited and saw how they had physically redesigned the workspace. He didn't have a doctor's workroom and a nurse's room and the pharmacist down in the pharmacy. They designed spaces where all three could actually sit. Now they might be on computers doing the charting, but um, you know, I think it was a really interesting rethinking of the work and it sounds like you're describing flow is trying to um speed up or smooth out um handoffs from one person to another that right. we don't I, I, yes so part of that is eliminating the need for the handoffs okay yeah so so uh
0: somebody uh, at one of my workshops i did uh was listening very well to what i was saying and they contributed this they say you're you're not trying to run the race faster. You're trying to shorten the race. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's, in, in a way, we're, if we work separately, then the, the, the communication uh, lag it, it extends quickly. So if I, if I need to communicate with you, uh, Mark, and I and you're sitting right next to me, then we will already be close to being in the same context. Now with mob programming or with group programming, we would be in the same context. We're looking at the same computer screens, working on the same thing. So that gives us a, a really quick feedback. But if we're working side by side, I can turn to you at any moment and just ask you a question. Whereas, if you are uh, five cubicles down, I have to either get up and walk over there, and then I feel like, oh I'm interrupting him. Uh, maybe I'll just send a message first. And so each separation of the other people on the team, we are increasing the lag time or the queuing. Now, if I send you an email saying, "Hey, I got to talk to you about this thing," you look at it and you go, "Well, I got to finish what I'm doing by the end of the day." So you send back an email saying, "Can we meet first thing tomorrow morning?" Well, we've we've just introduced a very laggy system where we are, have a big queue involved. The queuing is a big problem in lean manufacturing, mm-hmm. but the queuing is also a big problem in um, Product development, Uh, Reinertsen's book, uh, he makes the claim that uh, queuing is the cause of the majority of waste in product development, and software development is product development. But I would say, regardless of what your field is, queuing is going to be a waste. But if it's the majority of the waste, or at least the largest portion, I guess, uh, majority of the waste, then what's our benefit of reducing that what are we going to get back if we reduce that and essentially what we're trying to do is have this manageable cycle time we aren't necessarily working any more or less when we remove that cycle time or remove that queuing but we are going to see things being accomplished much sooner it's the idea it's not that we're working faster or harder it's just that we removed waste Mm. that's just it's a simple concept that's kind of hard to understand I and mean, you do such a good job uh i heard you or saw you uh once where maybe it was in a tweet or something where you said you know let's let's not say let's cut costs let's make it easy for people to do their work and lower costs are going to be a benefit of that mm-hmm. if we've gotten to the point where demanding lower cut costs right now cutting costs right now it may be too late anyways Let's invest in making it easier for people to work uh, early on, and we will re- reap those benefits of lowered costs throughout our entire process. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: so I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, even the idea of paired programming, yet alone a larger group or mob, I, I could see where, I, you know, the, the Dilbert pointy hair boss would look and say, well, that's incredibly inefficient. I can improve your efficiency by 50% and fire half of the pairs. Right. I mean, how do you, you know, when you, when, and, and I think there, there's this general issue or challenge with lean in different settings, the conflict between quote unquote efficiency and flow. Um, you know, I think if you go back to Toyota production system, it said the two pillars are basically just in time flow. And quality of the source, they're you know it, they're they're not really overemphasizing efficiency in terms of just an outputs divided by inputs ratio. You can have a highly efficient system that delivers really slowly, and and that's to a competitive disadvantage.
0: Oh yeah, oh yeah, and there's other problems with this as well.
1: You can be extremely
0: efficient at producing something that. Um, Will later to be found uh you can't even sell the thing. Right. So under so the, the the thing about inventory in this uh scenario is that if we have stacks and stacks of inventory to keep the uh assembly line operating smoothly, we, we really have sabotaged ourselves. If you reduce that inventory down to the point where there's you know they call just in time or whatever. But uh if you reduce that inventory to that degree and can do it well, you know, ideally, the parts that you're going to assemble were manufactured immediately before uh, you assembled them. Well, that ideal can never be really had. But if you want to reduce it, because if you don't, you're going to end up with things like producing lots of stuff nobody wants. But also, you might have produced, you know, just imagine this like a typical scenario, you've made a part, it's got holes drilled in it, and you're going to fit other pieces into the holes. And then when you get the other pieces to put in you, they're not fitting we got a million of these things drilled and a million of those parts made, you know, there's a huge waste here that we would have discovered. So we attempt to solve that by doing continuous uh, in, uh, inspections and stuff, which are just another kind of waste. Right. And so, uh, but if we discover it as, as soon as the two parts are ready to assemble, then, then we can stop assembling, you know, pull the cord or whatever they say, stop the line. This is the same basic thing in this knowledge work area of software development. We can discover a, a really blatant example that I saw once uh, was uh, we were sitting with the, the team and one of the team members is an expert on the database we're using. And uh, a front-end person was discussing some feature we're going to have and some some information that's going to be displayed to the user. And the database person could say, well, where are we going to get that information? So that is coming forward uh, in real time. So that everybody's thinking about this stuff rather than having meetings later or beforehand to discuss it. One of the biggest problems with having meetings is you know, the famous saying, we think we've communicated when we actually haven't. Uh, and really, this is mob programming or group programming like this in a way, just like I think the example you gave with the, the pharmacist and the, the nursing staff and the doctors all working much closer together. Basically, what's going to happen is we're going to uh, find out sooner rather than later. And this allows us to apply everybody's brain at the same time to what, is, what solutions might we want to try. If I believe things have to be a certain way, and I don't realize how difficult that makes your job until later, after we've had many meetings and so on, that's a, we've introduced waste into our system. But if you're there to share your concerns at the same moment they first come up, we get to operate on it much, much sooner. And what this is, so the benefit that I saw after a year or two of working uh, in this way where everybody's sitting at the same computer was things were getting done a lot quicker. The work was, itself was going from start to finish very rapidly. Right. Uh, their quality was becoming very high. The, um, the knowledge that we were gaining as a team was growing rapidly, which wasn't growing before, and it was a stress-free environment. In other words, we were no longer concerned about a lot of things that would have uh, driven the stress up on the team. We become very um, territorial when people come and demand from us the work that we need to do. We become less territorial when we're sharing the decisions with those other people. I think the stress and and the, the things like territorialism and so on,
1: um, don't help. Uh, we need to get rid of those things. Can, can I tell you a quick story, a different oh, story from healthcare that, that comes to mind? Because you, you might appreciate this when it comes to territory or silos. And like one thing I've learned or I've seen is when people work in different departments or co-located, it's really easy and tempting to blame those faceless jerks in that other department. Yes. And so the dynamic I was seeing was the emergency room nurses would draw blood specimens, and they would uh, they would have the tube, and they would print out a label, and they would label it, and they would send it to the lab. And from the ER's perspective, boy, that lab—they're always complaining that the labels are on crooked. And you know how lab people are; they're just overly particular and anal-retentive and too detailed, and that's why they work in the lab. And kind of invalidating. The complaints about sure. the labels being crooked. Well, from the, the labs' perspective, they were thinking those people in the ER. I mean, maybe they're in a rush, but they they're, they're careless and they never label those tubes properly. And when then we have to relabel them, which is you know hugely wasteful on our part. And why can't they just put the labels on straight? So one of the things we facilitated was literally forming a, a, a team. Uh, Getting people from the nurses to come visit the lab and vice versa to understand their, their environments. And the biggest takeaway was for the ER nurses to understand how the laboratory equipment worked. And if you can imagine a tube of blood standing up vertically and going down this conveyor belt and there are barcode scanners. And apparently, you know, the orientation of the barcode really did make a difference on whether the scanner would get it or not. And once the nurses saw that and they realized there really was more of a necessary reason for that label to be straight, it wasn't just the whim or the preference of those people in the lab who were easily discounted, like just bringing together people to see that and talk through it. It wasn't a permanent co of the teams, but it was really more a matter of just breaking down the silos and for one, getting them to meet each other as people Back to what you said about people learning how to relate to each other, and and literally like knowing who those people are and that they have names, and then understanding how their work fit into the context. That label problem pretty much took care of itself overnight. So again, it's not that the people in in the ED couldn't label them straight; they they didn't really fully grasp why it was necessary, and it wasn't complicated. But in these departments, we're literally a hundred feet down the hall from each other, but yet there was this huge disconnect.
0: Well, that's a great example. Um, Actually, uh, if that's been documented somewhere, I'd love to read about that. Um, But, you you know, the famous uh, King's Cross uh, fire in in the London underground, Um, what they basically found was that the territorialism between departments uh, made a a disastrous fire become, a, a small fire become a disastrous fire. Because, you know, you weren't allowed to, you know, report uh, a, a, an incident through the correct channels unless it got to a certain level of, of, uh, of uh, that's right, where you know, emergency. Severity. And so yeah. this was just a little part of it. There was, you know, the, the fire department, the maintenance crews and on and on had all become very compartmentalized. And so if a problem did start occurring, which it did, I don't know, remember how many people, but a number of people died in that. It was back in the 80s, I guess. But this basic idea that we, we don't really, we can't understand why are they so pressuring us so much to do things this way? What I like to encourage teams to do is that once we've identified that we have things that are, and I, would, I ask the question this way, what happens or what things are occurring Make it difficult for you to do your work effectively. And if I ask that question in a workshop, I'll usually get uh, from 20 people, will get maybe 50 answers in five minutes. So we gather those together, group them, look at them. And essentially, um, all of those things usually are symptoms. They're not actual problems. Mm. Why? So, like, one thing programmers will often say is, I have to go to too many meetings. Well, The meetings themselves aren't the problem. The meetings exist uh, because of some need that's not being fulfilled. And so the meetings themselves are a symptom of a problem. And we need to, maybe, we need to understand the problem rather than trying to deal with the symptoms. If we deal with the symptoms, we will more likely hide the problem, than solve the problem. And now we have two problems. The original problem is now hidden And the original problem still exists. But I believe there's a bigger problem here as well. I'll use that term. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think most problems can be solved of the types that we're gonna get that really can make a difference. If we know the Kinevan framework, if your listeners don't know it, we can put a link to that maybe in. But with the Kinevan framework, there's these different domains. And one is the clear domain, one is complicated, one's called complex, and one's called chaotic. In the clear domain, yeah, we can solve problems. Uh, my computer shuts down early because the battery is getting old. We can identify it easily, and then we know the solution: put in a new battery. And then uh, that one will last for two or three years. And you know that's a, that's the a clear space. But in the complex space where much of our work exists, you can't just you can't just uh, see the problem and say, "I know the solution." Usually, it's a wicked problem, which is one that you can't even begin to understand the problem. So you've tried a few solutions and you're going to discover real quickly that we're usually dealing with the symptom instead of the problem. And one thing I like to share about that is that if we are working on symptoms instead of problems, then we, we need to, I would say, reframe uh, what we think the problem is. We probably need to get different perspectives. We need other people to come in and, and look at it with us. So a lot of the collaboration that works in this software development is that I think can work in many other domains is that we are uh, inviting all the different perspectives on things that are happening. I've watched this for years. I'm going to be really bold about it right now. I think that the big problem management usually uh, introduces is that famous quote from uh, Peter uh, Drucker that uh, much of what we consider management is simply making it hard for people to work. (laughs) And I think I know the reason for it. I could be wrong. But managers see one of the problems they need to solve is that we need to make it easy. Management's hard to do. We need to make it easier to manage things. That's a mistake. We don't. We shouldn't make it easier to manage things. Let's make it easier for people to get their work done. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes easy to manage. Yeah. It's the same thing that uh, I, I shared from you earlier about cutting costs. Right. Yeah. It's a difficult thing. Uh, why are things so hard to manage? Because we think we need to manage them. Mm. Uh, there's a lot going on here. We can't cover this short amount of yeah. time. Yeah, yeah,
1: That's yeah. Thought provoking, though. But again, like a lot of it comes back to systems. I hear many yeah. complaints in healthcare about similar idea of um, you know, management making it either making it harder to do the work or management not making helping make it any easier. Right. Um, you know, similar dynamic maybe. And, uh, you know, back in manufacturing, or remember, you know, there was always people who preferred to work second shift because there weren't as many managers around. Right, right. Just leave you know, me alone and I, let me do my work if you're not going to, if your presence isn't going to be helping me, at least I can avoid being irritated by it. And, yeah, I, and it's sad to hear that in healthcare sometimes. Um, so well, so, so this, is a, this is
0: related to this the sy- symptoms versus the problems themselves. So if somebody is going to, you know, if they feel safe enough to even say that to someone, that I prefer the second shift. You know, when I was a kid uh, doing, you know, odd jobs, so to speak, I got a job at a a fast food place and I went on the midnight shift, which would go from about 11 until uh, 7 a.m. And mostly what you did on that shift is clean the stainless steel everywhere, but also there's no managers there. So, you know, you're kind of in your own space doing a mindless work. And that's not necessarily unpleasant. So yeah, I I can see how that can be. Um, Many people um, in software want to just be in the space of the code and they learn all kinds of ways to avoid interacting with other people, going to meetings and so on. And yet, um, well, I went to one place not too long ago. Whenever I hear a word when I'm consulting with someone or, or helping them work through something, when I hear a word repeated two or three times, I write it down on my little notebook and start putting check marks next to it. Yeah. If I hear something like five or 10 times, I'm going to go, that's a word that we better look at. And yeah. I just heard the word meetings over and over again. And I finally start gathering numbers from the developers. They were in meetings on average six hours a day. So, you know, like you're not programmers, you're meeting goer tours or something like that. You know, you're not, um, you can't program. Uh, if you're mostly in meetings so yeah whatever we do symptoms uh, meetings are a symptom I think of uh, we haven't found a way to communicate important things in a more uh, direct manner and we end up there's many practices in business that we do because we haven't recognized that there might be some better way to do it and the two big ones are Maybe we need a more direct way of communicating, or maybe we don't need to be communicating these
1: things.
0: (laughs) It's not just make it easier to communicate. It may be let's eliminate the need to communicate. it.
1: Well, I mean, it makes me think of a phrase that could be attributed to many people, uh, perhaps. Let's not do the wrong thing right Yes, yes. Well, if uh, I
0: read a book recently about how to make your how to make your meetings better, something like that, you know. And as I read the book, I really wanted to see what's the point of view. I I just kept telling myself the first step is get rid of most of your meetings. Let's not try to make the meetings more engaging or fun or whatever.
1: My my observation from different settings is when there's some sort of regular meeting that gets referred to by its time of day. Oh, yeah. yeah, It's probably not a very useful meeting. Are you going to the 10 o'clock? Yeah. Yeah. We're just filling time. What's going on here? Uh, Well,
0: that's a really good point because we can observe our workplace and get a feel for what, where the problems might be just by seeing how the culture has absorbed that practice into it. I I do believe a a lot of what's uh, difficult in in the workplace is the culture in place. So whatever culture is there is going to reveal to good observer, you know, what the problems are. I don't think it's easy for us to change the culture. I don't believe that that that, that can be transformed or whatever people like to say, you know, we're good, we're good doing a culture transformation. I'm not sure that's possible, but we certainly can create opportunities for other good things to be happening around us. And that's one of the things we really paid a lot of attention to Uh, When we originated the idea of mob programming, we were also using this mechanism that I call um, turn up the good. And I had seen this throughout my life, but uh, I heard various people talking about them. This one of them, Kent Beck, who was also at the conference we were at, Uh, he originated this idea. But basically, he had practices in software development that he understood were useful. What happens if we just start turning those up like a sound mixing board? just turn things up, and then let's see how high can we turn each thing up. And I believe that's a a really good approach. It lessens the need to solve problems because as you turn up the good on the things that are working well, a lot of problems just disappear or fade away Uh, or at least minimize to the point where you don't see them as problems anymore. If you get really good at working with your coworkers, a lot of the problems of the workplace disappear. how can we, you know, let's just turn up the good on collaboration. That's one of the things we were trying to do. I think that actually is a a part of what uh, the original lean thinkers were doing, was finding ways to uh, take advantage of what was working for them. I'm sure they focused a lot on solving problems, but I want to emphasize again those Kinevan domains. In some domains, it's really easy to identify the problems, follow some basic best practice kind of stuff, and you've got it solved. But when you moved into the complicated and then complex space, which is complex spaces where I operate, you you cannot just simply uh, identify a problem and solve it. It takes a great deal of um, experimenting and discovery as opposed to analysis. And uh, you you need to try things and see where it takes you.
1: So maybe one other topic that I wanted to touch on a little bit, you know, this maybe in, in in this realm of eliminating something instead of getting better at doing it, yes, is yes. Uh, the the no estimates movement. Um, I can only imagine. I mean, because you know, in healthcare, let's say operating rooms, they they schedule procedures, and it's not like uh, in mo- most procedures there, there's going to be variation, and it's not like an assembly line with a very predictable forty five second job cycle the last thing a surgeon would want is some manager being overbearing about the estimate for how long that procedure is going to take, especially if it's a really relatively new innovative procedure. How long is that going to take? Why aren't you done yet? How much longer is that going to take? They get get thrown out of the operating room because of the, uh, maybe the power dynamics, but maybe can you talk about what, I mean, am I exaggerating the way software estimates um, are either irritating or dysfunctional? What, what leads to the no estimates movement?
0: So this, I think, is, is a, a very much related with what we've already been talking about. So first of all, uh, I observed uh, working at a company in 1999, I observed a cycle of um, we would do work, then we would reflect on how it went. And then we would determine how to improve things, and then we'd go off and do work again. They were using a six week cycle. So we would have, um, uh, they basically had a couple weeks for developing the requirements and estimating the work, then a couple weeks to actually do the coding, and then a couple weeks to uh, integrate the coding with the rest of the application and do the testing. So this was going to be their six week iteration, which is a very long iteration span for nowadays programming. But in those days, that was still at the beginnings of these things. So, um, at the end of the first iteration, we did our reflection on what it, how things had gone. Uh, it came out one of the things that that they found was the estimates weren't very useful. So, what they decided to do was let's get better at doing our estimates. This is mostly young people. I was already in my mid forties, but most of the developers were in their early early twenties, like twenty one to twenty three, and so. They decided we, and there was about 200 developers, we need to get better at doing our estimates. So we got some trainers to come in and teach us about what you needed to know. And part of that is you need to have your requirements rather well defined. And uh, that was another problem they had. The, The requirements weren't really well specified. And another problem they were having was things kept changing during the iteration. So how are you going to solve these things? Well, we need better estimates based on better defined things and no changes are allowed during an iteration. But at the end of that six weeks, uh, the second six weeks, those three problems still existed. We've been trained to do better estimates. We've been trained to, to get better requirements, but the training didn't help us that much. We still had the same problems. So they decided to, again, let's get even better. Let's work to get better at our estimates. After three of these, uh, cycles, I, I stood up in the meeting. I was avoiding talking because uh, I knew that they were going to, they would can me if I said anything, you know. So then but finally I stood up and said, I, I think we have a situation here where we're looking at the symptoms instead of the problems, just like what we were talking about a few minutes ago. And I explained what was going on, what I thought was going on. Uh, and then the next day, nobody would talk to me. And for about five or six days, nobody in the organization would talk to me. Uh, I was doing my work and I'd go to talk to someone and they'd, they'd interact with me. But if I'm walking down the hallway and a group of people are coming up in the other direction and say, hey, Jim, how you doing? They just walked past me. I finally cornered one of these young people and I said, what's going on here? And they were, they were too uh, taken aback by me asking them to run away from me. And uh, he said, well, the managers told us not to talk to you. And I thought, okay, that's not the problem I thought we were having. But this, uh, I identified it and started calling it the cycle of continuous no improvements. We have this cycle of no improvements because we just don't want to believe that the processes we're following aren't working for us. And we attempt to solve the same problems over and over again. And then we're either hiding the, the problems by dealing with the symptoms or we're introducing new problems in some other way. That was where it began. It became clear to me that I would like to be talking to people about estimates, because I had experienced a earlier contract where they didn't do estimates. The main problem with estimates in software development is we are doing product development, and there's very little of what you're doing that is going to be highly repetitive. And right. you could say, well, we need to add a new table to the database, or we need to add a, uh, we need a new screen, and we could think that that's just repetitive work. a new page on your website, you know, how long does it take to do a page? You just do it. But estimates um, in the software industry for years, uh, they've had this thing called, I think it's the Standish report. I'd have to look it up, but basically how well did projects do against their estimates Mm. and a high, high level of failure over many years, but they're using the wrong thing in my opinion to judge success. Because if we were to get a project done on time, and on budget, is that a measurement of success? Well, I would say a much better measurement of success might be, did we deliver something the customer wanted? <laughs> um, is this thing being used by people? Are they happy with its use? And do they want more features? There's other things to measure. Because if we just get things done on time and on budget, that's, just, that's not a good measurement of its success. Then we start, we're focusing on the wrong thing. That becomes, you know, is it Deming uh, who says, uh, or maybe it was Russell Acuff who said, you know, uh, uh, essentially, if you give, I think Deming, if you give a manager a, a numeric goal to meet, right. they will essentially ruin the company to meet that goal. Yeah, that's
1: a, a Deming point. And a I'll Deming thing,
0: okay. And that, I, yeah. love, I love Deming. Yeah. And so uh, this, this was the beginning of me thinking I need to talk about it in software development. But almost 10 years earlier, I'd experienced working without estimates in custom manufacturing. I owned a small company, and some of my customers we had manufactured certain things for. And one day, somebody came to, into me with an emergency. And that emergency, uh, it, was, it was for a new customer i never dealt with before. And as I looked at the problem, uh, they had an emergency that had an extremely strict, very short deadline for uh, doing some work on some prototypes that they needed to take to a trade show in just a couple of weeks, a big manufacturing firm well-known in the, in the computer industry. And so as I looked at their thing, I said, you know, we can't know whether we can do this yet. So um, what I'm going to require if you want us to do it is uh, you have to provide somebody to be on my site to make the snap decisions throughout this process. In three days, they wanted us to accomplish something. And I actually, i asked them, why did you come to us? And they said, we've run out of people to go to. They had All of their usual vendors and everybody else that they had tried, nobody would tackle it. It was a Friday afternoon they came to me. But I saw that as an opportunity. So we, we dug into it. We actually accomplished what they needed. But we couldn't have done it if they didn't have a person in my shop prepared to make decisions immediately. Like, I can accomplish this. Is that good enough? Yes, good enough. Okay, we move forward. Not good enough. Then let's try something else. They made those snap decisions. We accomplished the work. And this is the basic idea um, of the no estimates, is that if we work together, we can get a better result. Matter of fact, I can I can make this guarantee right now. If I had to estimate that for them, it would have taken me a few weeks to estimate the work. I would have to do some prototypes and so on. They would have missed their deadline if I had to do the estimate. Yeah. So this was the beginning of my thinking about I think I'd rather work with customers who don't need estimates than work with customers uh, who require the estimates. And I lost a lot of work over the years uh, to people who bid less than me on work. And as I analyzed it, as a matter of fact, at one point in our company, my wife and I would sort of do a mini celebration whenever we would lose a job because of price. Mm. Because we would kind of say, good, someone else is losing money instead of us. Right. <laughs> And so, because we knew what it took to make money off this stuff. Yeah. So anyway, so the thing in software development is that estimates are thought to be necessary to be able to make decisions. Uh, But I learned this many years ago. uh, There are better ways to make the decisions we need. And the further you are from when something needs to be completed, the more necessary it is to have some kind of estimates to be able to make your decisions. I believe if we just break things down as we go into small things and we don't need to estimate to do that. It's kind of like, if you take a, if you take a piece of paper, boy, I don't know if I can show you. So here's a piece up piece of paper. And if I do this to it, I now have two smaller bits and I did not need to estimate anything. Mm-hmm. And this is smaller than those bits. And this is smaller than those bits. I can take things apart without ever making an estimate. Yeah. But when I get something to a point where I can easily work on it, that's where I like to get it, but I don't need to rip the rest of this up to do that. All I need to do is get one part that we think has some value and start working on it. Well, that's unique to software development, perhaps, but that's that's the thing with software development. If our estimates are not helping us and we can't get good enough, I've been working in software in some form or another for almost 40 years. I don't think I've seen a period where people weren't talking about we need to get better at our estimates. Mm-hmm. If you can't get better at estimates in 40 years, let's try something else. And I do believe that estimates are a symptom of a decision-making process that doesn't work very well. Mm. How do we find that better decision-making process? And I believe that the modern thinking about agile concepts, uh, partly uh, what they call Kanban, but the idea of working on uh, limiting your work in progress or your work in process, limiting that. Learning as you go, discovering what your customers really want becomes possible. Uh, What I find is that if we start delivering something that we think is valuable, we will learn quickly about what we want next and we will get better and better at making those decisions without ever needing to have estimates. But it's almost impossible for most organizations to make that leap. It's a very difficult um, point to see. And I have no I have no uh, I can offer no guidance on how you can convince somebody else that this is worth considering. yeah I sure. what I do find is there are a lot of people who are ready to consider these things, and those are the people I prefer to work with. Mm-hmm. You know if you're ready to try something new, you've already been burnt enough with the old old thinking, yeah, let's try some new things
1: <laughs> and And for those people who uh, want to find you um you've got your website woodyzool.com z-u-i-l-l that's probably the best thing right there uh, i do tweet a lot uh, or
0: sometimes i tweet a lot sometimes i don't but uh and i, I like the twitter environment i'm Woody Zool in twitter and i'm easy to find in linkedin i will uh always accept uh, an invitation in linkedin yeah and i'm very boldly uh if you want to talk with me uh, I'm always open to talking just like this one-on-one with anybody
1: yeah.
0: if there's something you think I can contribute
1: Well, I, I know there is and and final question. I'm gonna ask you because it says on the website here um, your name Mob programming teamwork good stuff and whatnot. So final yeah, question. Think- do, do, you, do you have a, a favorite? Uh, a favorite whatnot these days <laughs> Well, you know, I I really
0: enjoy, lately I've been enjoying working with teams that are newly uh, remote, Mm -hmm. and so this is uh, one of the things that I've been enjoying uh, quite a bit. I I love to work with people who are trying to learn to collaborate well. Mm -hmm. So mob programming is is, um, very specific to software development, but uh, these ideas, I'm working with a team that does some engineering, and uh, so this is the stuff I love.
1: Well, thank you for taking some time to talk about that. I always love talking to people who um, talk about something they love. I guess that's really what the podcast is about here. So, again, our guest today has been uh, Woody Zuhl. Um, Woody, it, it's been uh, really nice uh, being able to um, interact with you in in, in that group, um, you know, consultant Zoom call, and um, appreciate you know you a lot of helpful, thought-provoking things to share. So uh, I'm glad we could do that today one-on-one and, and share that with others here the well, It's been my honor. Yeah, thank you. Mark. My honor, thank you. Thanks for listening.
0: This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.